morning, everyone. It's been a strange summer, hasn't it? it just as it's starting to feel like summer, um, the X is, is on. It's, it's being reminded that summer is almost over. Uh, we've had uh, uh, plenty of rain, and now we're getting, getting ready for uh, uh, fall. Can't be too far off. But what is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets, inflamed with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What has become of them? It's a quote from Plato in the 4th century. And it's a quote that reminds me that I think every generation looks at young people and says, what are we going to do? It's, we've, we've lost them. They're, they're, they've, they've gone too far. And when I look at our young people and when I look at the next generation, I'm far more hopeful than that. I'm far more encouraged than that. But I also realize that there are major challenges. Uh, earlier this month, uh, Lauren Stussy wrote an article for the New York Post in which she declared, millennials are choosing pizza, push-ups, and video games over church. Uh, She states statistics that show that uh, 28% of millennials are uh, attending church. That's down from 38% for baby boomers and 51% of older generations. Uh, She interviews a number of people and and, uh, tells their stories. One young woman says, fitness has allowed me to connect to my inner self more than sitting through a religious service. A great instructor provides spiritual guidance and builds a community. Uh, In the summer, some of you may have noticed that Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg said that social media is filling the void that has been left by uh, organized religion. Uh, Stussy's article quotes a 27-year-old consultant who says, her Facebook network now serves the purpose that up until eight years ago, she was meeting through her, uh, her church community. 22-year-old guy who was raised in the church left organized religion after high school, and now he says video games offer him the same solace that he enjoyed in church by connecting him dig- digitally to a community of online players and without the deep fear of going to hell. Unfortunately, the fact that you don't think about the deep fear of going to hell doesn't mean that it's not a reality and it's not something that you have to deal with, right? I think the next generation's challenges are all of our challenges. I think that they're something that we all need to take on and all need to take seriously. If you're a parent, you need to know what do you need to do to try and equip your child for some of these challenges. If you're a grandparent, you need to know what, what influence can you have? What, what, what is your part? Maybe if you're a Sunday school teacher or, or a youth leader, you need to know what's your role. How can you make a difference? How can you help? And if you're part of that next generation, you need God's direction both for your own life as well as for the people that you're growing up around and those people that you, you care to call friends. Today's passage, I think, deals with those issues. I think it answers those kinds of questions. That if we haven't asked them already, chances are someday we will have to answer them. Shows us, I believe, how to reach the the next generation when we find that the ground is shifting. 
teaches how to encourage them to stay, how to ensure that they'll stray, and, and it points us to the God who is greater than all of our efforts. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to 2 Timothy. Uh, we, we've been working our way through uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, and I'm going to read from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're just going to read the entire passage from verse 14 down to 19, and then we'll break it down into some of the details. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. Remind them of these things, and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid a reverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, let's start by camping on verses 14 to 15 and the encouragement that we have here on how to encourage them to stay, how we can influence the next generation with God's truth, how to encourage them to stay. And we've said as we've come through this series that it's written at a time of huge crisis. It was written by uh, the Apostle Paul to to his disciple Timothy, a a pastor probably at this point, this point about 36 37 and Paul's facing execution and the church is facing persecution it's a time of crisis false teachers and false teaching has has begun to spread throughout the church and Timothy's feeling anxious about what's coming next if his mentor Paul is going to be executed and he's facing uh, Timothy himself is facing the challenges that he is what What's to do? What's he to do? What, what, what can come and, and, and what will happen and, and how can he respond to it? He's eager to get a letter from, from Paul and, and probably expecting Paul's going to announce some new program that will prepare him, some, some new technique that will be the, the thing that, that clinches it in, in helping him to respond to, to some of the challenges. Uh, he may be thinking, what he needs to really do is to start teaching something different because this message that he's teaching right now doesn't seem to be working. A lot of people seem to be rejecting it and, and resisting it. If he thought any of those things, he may have been a little disappointed when he got to verse 14 and he reads where Paul writes, remind them of these things. You know what we remind people of, right? Right? You remind people of things that they already know. That's why we call it reminding, not telling them. You, you remind people things that they already know. And I believe if we're going to reach the next generation, this is where we need to start. Uh, we need to start by reminding them of some things. The, these things that we're supposed to be reminding people of are the things that Paul's been teaching Timothy throughout this letter. It, it's not one little trick or one little Hint, it, it is the es- essential Christian uh, message, basic gospel truths. 
you know why we remind people? We remind people of things that they already know, but we remind them because they are prone to forget, right? I, I do this all the time. I, I ask Jennifer all the time, could you remind me of this? Because it's really important, but I know there's all kinds of things floating around in my mind. I'm going to forget it. I ask uh, Google Calendar to remind me of just about everything. Like, uh, I, I ask my phone to send me notifications because I am going to forget things. And that's what we need to remind uh, the next generation of. I, I ask for all of these reminders, not because I don't know those things, but because I am prone to forget them. They're liable to get lost. Probably a child growing up in, in our church, by the time they reach adulthood, will have heard probably around 800 to 1,000 sermons and Bible studies, depending on the, uh, the circumstances of, uh, of the family. But they'll probably only remember what you remind them of. It's hard to keep 1,000 sermons straight in your, in your mind, right? That's a lot of information. What they will retain is what you have reminded them of? What has become prominent out of that a thousand, that thousand messages? The Bible is also about a thousand pages long. Nobody can remember all of that. Nobody can put a thousand pages together in, in, a, in a neat little package in their mind. People don't remember a thousand pages. And so they need to keep clear, what are the main things? What's the heart? What's the center? And we need to first figure that out for ourselves and then keep reminding not only our own hearts, but we need to keep reminding the next generation of what's, what's at the heart of this? What do you need to lay hold of? What can you not forget? We need to keep reminding them of that. Two children can grow up in the exact same church and draw vastly different conclusions about God and the Bible simply because their fa- families have reminded them about different things. One family can remind their child to be good, to do good. They can remind their child that God's watching them. They can remind their child that God will get them. And they can probably quote Bible verses for all of those things. And the child will develop a, uh, a vision of God and, and the Christian life based on what their family reminded them about. Another family can remind their child about the goodness of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God, the the love of Jesus Christ, God's faithfulness in our lives. Can remind the child about the free invitation of the gospel and about the life that accompanies true repentance and true faith. Those two children can attend the same church, can listen to those same thousand sermons, And because the families have reminded them about different things, actually growing up in the same church, those two children can develop different religions, completely different ways of seeing the world, seeing God, seeing the scriptures. We need to keep the center straight and remind the next generation what it is. That's what I think Paul's talking about in verse 15 when he urges Timothy to rightly handle the word of truth. We each shape the view of God's truth that we pass on to the next generation. We, we give them a vision of 
out of all of that, this is, this is where it's all pointing to. This is where it's all headed. Too often we skew that message. We, we, we can, though, keep the word straight by, by, by reading it, by showing the next generation that it's precious enough to make time for. We keep the word straight when we do what the scriptures say when we respond to God's word and treat it as the word of God, the word of God in our own lives, the word of God for ourselves. And we keep the word straight when we focus on what the word focuses on. And the scriptures teach that the word is focused on the person of Jesus Christ, the good news that he came to accomplish, and the life that he calls us to live. Now, reminding is important, and If any of you have experienced somebody reminding you of something, you know that repetition is important. You know that timing is important, but but there's some repetition involved. But repetition isn't the same as nagging, right? Reminding and nagging are two vastly different things, right? Nagging is when we become the broken record. Nagging is when you become the leaky faucet. Nagging is when you are told something over and over again and you don't really want to hear it. Nagging is when we're not really listening. We are just giving a monologue. Nagging is like taking a a slotted screwdriver to a, a Phillips screw head. And we can see that we're stripping the screw, but we just kept pressing harder, right? That's nagging. I think reminding is different than that. I think reminding is taking the good news of Scripture and applying it to the challenges of a child's life. Applying it to the circumstances. Having the uh, pause to listen and to see and observe and try and see where Scripture may, may, may apply, may help, and may bless. In verse 15, Paul uses the example of a worker. He encourages Timothy as a worker. And Paul, Paul knows what it's like to be a worker. He, he knows what it's like to be a contractor. Paul was a skilled tent maker, and he knew what it was like to go into the marketplace and sell his tents. He knew that you can go in, and you can kind of slap together a pretty poorly made tent. And if you're, if, if you're talking quickly enough, and, and, and you're kind of not... not uh, uh, showing your, your, your workmanship too much, you can make a quick sale. And, and you can make a quick buck. You can do that as a worker. You can do that as a contractor. But Paul also knew that eventually, unless you just skip town all the time, the customers come back. You got to deal with the complaints. And eventually, you face that embarrassing situation of having presented work that you really weren't proud of, that you really didn't put your effort into, and you have, to, you have to face the consequences. Paul says, in effect, if you want to encourage the next generation to stay, you, you can't cut corners. You need to be a, 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 an approved uh, workman. You need to work at it. You need to do your best. And Paul wants Timothy to be perfectly clear. It's not just his approval rating with the next generation that's going to decide his effectiveness. He says, do your best to present yourself, not to your child, not not to the next generation. Do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, 
It's before God that we'll feel ashamed if we've traded our comfort or our child's convenience for his glory, or for his uh, task that he's called us to. The next generation is watching us, but we're going to one day answer to God for our role. So let's work at the example, we, the example that we set, particularly how we treat God and his word. Before we move on, can I point something else? That these things that we're to remind the next generation of, they're the great truths of scripture, right? They're not some particular way of doing things. They're not some method or tradition or some certain form of, uh, of church that we've become very accustomed to and are f- very familiar with. I think that's important in, cur- in encouraging the next generation. We have to make it about the content, not the packaging. I, I read this fascinating study this week. It, it kind of still blows my mind. Uh, Yale School of Medicine, a researcher, uh, decided to do some research with some preschoolers. And sat the preschoolers down, gave them a plate of food, served them some chicken nuggets. And they divided up the chicken nuggets into two piles, and they put, put them both in packaging. One half of the plate had chicken nuggets in plain packaging. The other half had chicken nuggets in packaging with McDonald's logos on it. And they asked a child to eat the food, exactly the same food, identical nuggets, okay? They asked the child to eat the food, open the package, eat eat what was put before them, and they said, do you notice any difference in the taste of, of the food, or is it just the same? Do you like one more than the other, or are they, are they just the same? And you know what happened, right? Every single time the child said, the chicken nuggets in the McDonald's wrapper taste better than the other one. Every time. You think, well, that's just chicken nuggets, right? But they repeated this same experiment with all kinds of food. Apparently, apple juice tastes better in a McDonald's cup. Milk tastes better in a McDonald's cup. They even, they even t- did the test with carrots. Carrots in McDonald's packaging taste better than in plain packaging. Now, I, I can see the wheels turning for some of you. You're thinking, I'm going to start collecting those McDonald's packages, and I'll start, that's how I'll, I'll serve broccoli to my kids. That's how I'll get them to eat the different things you know, that I can't get them to eat. But that's not the point here. The point is... The packaging matters. If you're trying to reach a next generation with, with, with something that, that, that could de- involve some resistance and some challenging, the packaging matters. And the problem is, so sometimes we as parents and we as established churches can get the content and the packaging mixed up. We can get so wedded to the packaging when it's really the content that we are, we've been tasked with passing on. It, it's, we haven't been tasked with, pack, with passing on a certain kind of form, a certain kind of method, or a certain kind of packaging. The next generation won't hear the gospel from churches that insist on old-fashioned packaging. It just won't. And the next generation that shakes its head at churches who don't know the difference between the content and the packaging. They refuse to recognize the difference between the content and the packaging. 
One needs to be held on to, and the other needs to change with the times. So we've been thinking about reaching the next generation. We've been talking about how to encourage them to stay. But then the next portion that we'll look at now deals with the warning. It's, it's a warning about the other side, how to ensure that they'll stray. We don't want them to stray, but there's certain things that we can do that make it very, very likely that they will. We can't do anything to guarantee that we'll reach the next generation. Great parents, great churches still see people stray from the truth. But there are things that we can do to make it almost certain that we'll lose them and we need to be aware of them. So let's hear God's warning about how to ensure they'll stray. Verse 14 tells us the first thing to avoid is majoring on the minors. It says, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Now we need to say that there were times when Jesus did speak very forcefully about words, where he persuaded people what words do and don't mean. And there were other times in, throughout the scriptures where sin and false teaching are dealt with very powerfully, very boldly. Need to be confronted and dealt with. But in the first century, many rabbis and philosophers, they kind of gained a following and they did it by nitpicky attention to linguistic minutiae, talking about little things that just seemed so amazing that they were able to figure them out but in the grand scheme of things, really didn't mean much. Really weren't that significant. They would focus on, on, on areas and, and little turns of phrase and linguistic minutiae, and they got so caught up looking at minor things that didn't matter that they missed the major and the more significant. And 2,000 years later, there are lots of Christians lots of churches doing almost exactly the same thing, getting lost in the details and missing the main point. Paul warns, not only does it, no, does it do no good, but it actually ruins the hearers. When you get lost in the details and you miss the main point, it will ruin the people that you are trying to speak to. Paul had to warn Timothy about this in his first letter to him. In 1 Timothy 6.4, Paul described the kind of person to avoid, saying he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. When Christians argue about things that don't matter, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that do matter that we, we need to talk about more than we do, frankly. But when Christians argue about things that don't matter, Sin abounds. The consequence is not just that we wasted a couple of hours talking about things that don't matter. The, the inevitable consequence is that sin breeds in an atmosphere like that. Sin abounds because while we're arguing about the minutiae, we're ignoring the far more important things that we're supposed to be reminding the next generation about. So we ensure the next generation will stray by majoring on the minors, but also by keeping the conversation worldly. Verse 16 says, avoid irreverent babble. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Again, see the connection here between the speech and between 
the behavior that will follow. The words that we use affect people. Irreverent babble is Paul's way of talking about conversation that's just void of God's truth. It's it's filling the air without filling it with substance. It includes popular thinking, words without weight, ideas that are plain wrong. It includes the false teaching that many in, in, in Paul and Timothy's day were, were being susceptible to. We need to be very careful about what we believe. That's why we correctly handle the word of truth. Get it right and then fill your conversation with what, with what is right. Fill your conversation with words that matter, with words that have weight and substance to them. Because our words will influence how the next generation behaves, what they do. Our words have the power to make sin abound, (laughs) to make righteousness flourish. When we start repeating the false values of our world and the beliefs of false teacher, it actually leads people into sin. And according to verse 17, it's infectious. In colorful language, Paul says, their talk will spread like gangrene. And I don't know about you, maybe like you, you never hear this word. For some reason, I, I grew up, my dad was always warning me about gangrene. <laughs> like, I, I've never met someone who's suffered from gangrene. I've, like it's just, I, I don't know where, where, where this is at today, but my father was all, you do that, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have to deal with gangrene. I was like, wow, like gangrene, really? <laughs> but he was always, always warning me about it. And so when I, when I read a passage, their talk will spread like gangrene. That's a powerful image for me. I, I have very vivid memories, right? Paul uses the image to warn that false teaching is both dangerous, but it's also repulsive. Gangrene isn't a pleasant thing. And it's also infectious. It spreads. There were a couple of people in Ephesus who were particularly causing, causing trouble. Uh, Hymenaeus and Philetus had already been dismissed from the church. Paul had dealt with them, but they continued to persuade people. Verse 18 tells us that they were saying the resurrection has already happened, that there's nothing to wait for, that not only has Christ been raised from the dead, but we've all been raised from the dead. The the resurrection's already happened. They said that because the idea that people would physically rise from the dead after they had died that was, to the Greek ear, craziness. That was, that was just unpopular. It was just uh, uh, unappealing to Greek thought. And so Hymenaeus and Philetus have, uh, did what we have been doing ever since. They said, when it says it will be resurrected with Christ, what it really means is that in a spiritual sense, we're, we come alive with him. That's all it means. It, it, it's, it's talking about our, our fellowship with him. It's a metaphor. It's, we're supposed to interpret this spiritually. And, and people were listening. They're like, oh, okay, you know, that, that sounds good, I guess. You know? and, and, and they, they start taking the scriptures and bending them to popular thinking. Sounds very intellectual. Paul called it gangrene. Paul said you need to be careful of that. It spreads and it stinks. And the gangrene still spreads to this day. New Testament scholar John Dominic Crossan states his view like this. He said, 
Emmaus never happened. Emmaus always happens. Now, Emmaus was this uh, event where Jesus appears to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And like he's been, he's, he's died on the cross and, and he's come back to life physically and he's appearing to them, speaking to them, breaks bread to, with them and they realize this is the Lord. He's alive. He's been physically resurrected. John Dominic Crossan said, that didn't really happen. It always happens. It, that, that part was just a legend, but it's really communicating a deeper truth that Jesus always appears to us on the road to Emmaus. Jesus always spiritually is with us. He's, he's beside us. He comes to us when we break bread. And it sounds so spiritual, sounds so deep, and people lap it up. People, people love to hear something new, something that will, will stir them in some way. They think that they're on the inside track. And Paul calls it gangrene. Paul says that will ruin people. That is what will lead people into sin. That gangrene still spreads every time we bend God's word to mean things that it never meant when we bend God's word to culture and when we try to make it fit and say things that it never said. At least Strobel compares that kind of approach to God's word to a, a, a father who's giving a curfew to his teenage daughter. It's a weeknight and the daughter and her boyfriend are going out on a date and the father says to her, you must be home before 11. Seems pretty reasonable generous maybe, but it gets to be 10.45 p.m. and the two of them are still having a great time. They're, they're enjoying themselves. And so at 10.45, what seemed really clear at, at 7 or 8 now becomes hard to interpret. It's a little, little difficult to get their head around. And so they begin to ask themselves, what did he really mean when he said, you must be home before 11? Did he literally mean us? Or was he speaking about humanity in a general sense? Was he just making the observation that generally people are in their homes by 11 11 p.m.? Is that what he meant? Can't really be sure. He wasn't really very clear, was he? And what did he mean by, what did he mean by, you must be home before 11? Like, would a loving father be so adamant and inflexible? We know that our Father loves us and wants us to have a good time, and and we're having a good time. So surely he didn't mean you must must always be be home before 11 in all circumstances if if you're having such a good time. And what did he mean by you must be home before 11? Like, who's home? Could be your home, could be my home, and... It could be speaking metaphorically. You know, the, 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 the phrase, the home is where the heart is. This is where my heart is, and I'm having such a good time, I feel like I'm at home. And what did he really mean when he said you must be home before 11? Like, did he mean that in an exact literal sense? Was it at 11 p.m. or 11 a.m.? When you really think about it, we're always before 11, like some 11, the 11s just keep coming around and around. You're always before 11. How can we be expected to 
follow his words when they just, he just wasn't very clear. He wasn't very exact, wasn't very specific. Religion professors in major universities make six-figure incomes helping people to dissect the Bible this way, right? This passes for scholarly biblical interpretation in many places today. And the Bible says that it's gangrene. Sounds very academic and very spiritual, very philosophical, but it's still gangrene. And we need to avoid the thinking in our own heart when we justify the things that we tune God out from. And we need to immunize our children and the next generation about this way of thinking, about how we treat God and his word. God wants us to live a life of impact. He wants us to reach the next generation. And so he, he started by encouraging us how to encourage them to stay, He then moved to warning us how to uh, ensure that they'll stray. But he ends by encouraging us that at the end of the day, it's not all up to us. It's bigger than us. In verse 19, he points to the God who's greater than all of our efforts. I think that Timothy felt like many of us do in our generation. Uh, There's incredible change. Uh, There are incredible changes. developments that we need to respond to. There's so much opposition to Christianity and to biblical values, and we wonder, like, where is it all headed, and, and how do we deal with it, and, and like, are we up to the task, and I'm, am, I, am I doing enough? The ground is shifting so quickly in moral and spiritual values, we worry what will survive. And verse 9 declares almost defiantly, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. He reminds us that it's God's foundation and he's up for the task of protecting it. He can do what it what takes to sustain it and to protect it. The foundation that God has established in G- Jesus Christ is big enough and secure enough to weather Charlottesville. It's big enough to deal with Barcelona, with 9-11, with ISIS with liberal theology and gay marriage, God's firm foundation will stand and will continue to stand because he's the one that makes it stand. God's greater than the world's attacks and he's greater than all of our efforts. And so at the end of the day, it isn't all resting on our puny shoulders. God's greater. It's not all about our performance. He can take care of himself. To drive home the point, he points to the inscription. And you would always, in, in, in the, the Roman world, when they built a building, they would always have an ex- inscription on the foundation. And this inscription says, The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. They seem like a couple of random sayings, but they're actually taken from a famous episode in Israel's history that many of the hearers would hear them, and instantly it would kind of transport them back in time to a very memorable episode. The, the episode occurs in number 16, in a time when God had called Moses to lead and had called Aaron to be his high priest. He'd set, a, set them apart to his leadership. But a Levite man named Korah staged a power play. 
And he resisted their leadership. He rebelled against their leadership. And guess what? He was able to gather together another 250 leaders to stand with him. Moses knew that there was a limit to what he could humanly accomplish. How are you going to talk down 250 people? What arguments is he going to use to persuade these people that that, that are convinced that ultimately they're right? Moses believed in a God who's greater than human effort. He believed that God can do what he couldn't do. And it gave him incredible hope, hope as a leader. So he responded and said to them, well, you think this, I think that. Ultimately, God knows. God knows those who are his, those whom he has set apart, those whom he will work through. He believed in a God greater than human effort. And so he invited Korah and his followers, if you want to take on this job, show up with your censers. Show up with, they, they, would, they would bring their little containers to burn incense to the Lord. Maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe God's going to choose all of you. I think that you're kind of rebelling against his commands, but you just show up and, and tomorrow uh, uh, Aaron will be here with his censer and, and the 250 of you, you show up with your censers and we'll see what happens. He trusted that God could do something that he couldn't. At the same time, he urged the other Israelites, what's going down right now is evil and you need to steer clear of it. In fact, get away from their tents. Keep your distance from these people because if God acts in the way that I'm convinced that he will, you don't want to be there and you don't want to be near them when it, when it goes down. Well, God did respond. The next morning, he responded in power. He responded with fire. And the people that had stood up to oppose both God and Moses and Aaron were consumed by his judgment. God did what Moses couldn't do. Paul wanted Timothy to know, to have firmly, firmly fixed in his mind, that ultimately, Timothy had a part, but it didn't all rest on his shoulders. Ultimately, God could take care of himself. Ultimately, God would do what it takes to establish his foundation and to continue to secure it. God's greater than all of your efforts as a parent. God's greater than your efforts as a grandparent, as a Sunday school teacher, as a youth leader, of all of, all of the different roles. God's greater than my efforts as a pastor. And some of you are thinking, I sure I'm glad because, you know, if, if it was up to him, then we'd, we'd be in trouble, right? God's greater than all of our efforts. And we can find courage and help in that. He calls us to a task. He calls us to play a part. He leads us and he shows us what it, is, what it is. But at the end of the day, he reminds us that he's the one that's in control. He's the greater one under whom we can find our strength and our wisdom and our help. We can trust him. So let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, many of the things that we see in our world and in our families make us feel helpless. We feel that things are beyond us and they're beyond our control. 
And so we praise you that you are greater than our effort. We praise you that it's not all up to us. We praise you that you are the God who can be trusted. You're worthy of our trust. And you're the one who is constant amidst all the change. You're unchanging. You're the faithful one. And so we can rest in you. We can find refuge from uh, all of the, the changes that seem to continue to swirl around us. But Father, we want to do our part in encouraging the next generation. So give us help. We don't have it all figured out. But help us to do our part in reminding them of the things that are truly important. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and keep pointing them to the gospel. Father, help us not to major in the minors. Help us not to be those people that argue about things that don't matter. Help us to take up the task of reminding without becoming the people that are nagging. Fill our words with your word. Fill our conversations with substance, with weight, with glory. And Father, have mercy on our children. Have mercy on our grandchildren and and this generation that we believe is precious in your sight. For we ask you in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.